Hi folks, this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. We're up to episode 41, and this episode is about bridges falling down. One of the weird things about safety is we spend so much effort on safety analysis during design, despite the fact that almost all accidents happen after design is completed. One explanation is that addressing problems by building safety into the design is inherently more effective. But a more cynical thought might be that we think of building things as real engineering, but looking after them afterwards as just maintenance. In any case, it's a genuine problem that for most systems, there's a disproportionate effort put into making them safe at the point of commissioning, given where the risks are coming from during the life of the system. There are some exceptions to this though, and the major exceptions are big structural projects skyscrapers, dams, tunnels, and bridges. These are most dangerous while they're still being built. Here, the problem can sometimes go in the reverse direction. We put a lot of attention into making sure the finished design is safe, but sometimes we forget about the intermediate steps. A bridge, tunnel, or building that's structurally sound when it's complete can still be quite dangerous to build. The Westgate Bridge is one of the longest and highest bridges in Australia. In 1970, two years into construction, a 112 metre span of the bridge collapsed, killing 35 workers. Let's start by talking about the major players. We have the Lower Yarra Crossing Authority, which despite its name was a private company. They were the customer for the bridge, which was to be a toll road. The original consulting engineers were Maunsland Partners of Melbourne. Early on in the project, they quite properly realised the limits of their own competence. They weren't really suited for taking responsibility for a massive steel bridge. And so they recommended that a British firm, Freeman Fox and Partners, be called in. Maunsell and Freeman Fox jointly became the consulting engineers for the project. So effectively, these guys... Freeman Fox, or FFNP, were the designers of the bridge. The builders of the bridge were two companies, World Services and Construction, WSC, and John Holland Construction, JHC. World Services were originally in charge of the steelwork, and John Holland were originally in charge of the concrete. The actual steel, the concrete, and the bolts were supplied by BHP, Pioneer, and McPherson's. There was good evidence that the materials used to build the bridge were fine, so we're not going to hear any more about these three parties. The problems were in the design and construction. So keep in mind Freeman Fox, the designers, World Services, the steelwork, and John Holland, the concrete. The Westgate Bridge is a cable-stayed, box-girder design. This means that along the centre line of the bridge there are towers and cables, but these aren't the only thing holding it up. The roadway rests on a series of columns or piers, with two long beams between each pair of piers. These beams are the girders in the box girder. They're called box girders because the cross section is a hollow square, instead of a solid or eye shape. You can actually walk around inside the beams. I'm not a civil engineer, so this is a bit of a simplified explanation for how a box girder bridge is put together. 
you start by putting all the foundations and piers in place. Then you put up each span between each pair of piers. The first way you could do this is to build a temporary bridge under where you want the real bridge to go. You put all the pieces on top and you bolt them together and you put in the concrete. This is relatively straightforward, but it requires a lot of work to build and remove the temporary structure. The second way you could do it is build each span on the ground and then lift it up into place as a complete unit. This requires a slow lift of an object more than a thousand metric tons, but it's also fairly straightforward. The third way you could do it is to gradually extend the span from one of the piers, holding each piece temporarily in position while it's attached, then doing the next piece and the next piece and so on. This gives lighter lifts and less temporary structural work, but it requires joining lots of bits together up in the air. It also means you need to consider the physics of the partially extended spans. For the part of the bridge involved in the collapse, Westgate used a hybrid strategy. Each span was partly assembled on the ground. There were two long and thin assemblies which covered the whole span at half width. They lifted these to the top of the bridge, slid them into place, and then joined them together. Compared to assembling the whole thing on the ground, this method involved lighter lifting. Compared to assembling the whole thing in the air, this required less temporary structure. The disadvantage was it required very precise assembly on the ground, and very precise orientation in the air, or the two halves wouldn't fit together. To quote from the Royal Commission, These difficulties are substantial, and may be the reason why no evidence could be found that this method of erection had ever been attempted before anywhere in the world under conditions similar to those prevailing at the Westgate Bridge. End quote. There were two spans being put up using this method, span 1011 and span 1415. The numbers just refer to the two piers that each span goes between. Now this is where it gets a bit complicated, so bear with me for a moment. Imagine each span as two long beams laid alongside each other and then tied together. Each beam is made up of a set of boxes, which are prefabricated off-site, bolted together to form the beam, lifted up into place, and then secured in place and pulled together to the other beam. The beams aren't symmetrical and they aren't perfectly straight. They form a slight arch vertically along their length. This vertical bend is called a camber. If the two beams have got a slightly different camber, they'll line up at one end, but they're going to be a few inches apart at the middle and a few more inches apart at the other end. That doesn't work. If you're assembling a piece of IKEA furniture, you might loosen the other bolts, you might lean on things a little, you might push the holes until they line up. These people were dealing with 2,000 tonnes of steel, 50 metres off the ground. Things had to line up. As they were lifting the first assembly for span 1415, it began to buckle. It turned out that the design of the boxes was reasonable for when the bridge was assembled, but it couldn't handle the particular stresses of the way they were lifting it. Instead of putting it back on the ground and fixing things out, they decided to keep lifting and to fix it once it was up on the bridge. 
one of the engineers made calculations as to the safety of the damaged beam. After the accident, these calculations were found to be wrong in two different ways. He had calculated the bending forces assuming symmetrical shape, which was an inappropriate oversimplification, and he had, to quote the Royal Commission again, included at least one significant error of arithmetic. End quote. Now, I'm going to get back to engineering calculations a bit later on, and I was going to make a sarcastic remark about that particular error when I noticed the asterisks against this engineer's name. That engineer's not going to be alive at the end of this story. They reinforced the second beam before they lifted it. It also buckled on the way up, but not as much, so the two beams ended up with different camber. Halfway along the beams, they were out of alignment by about three and a half inches. They fixed this by lifting the end of one of the beams until they lined up, putting the connectors in place, then lowering the end of the beam again. With the beams joined in the middle, they could resolve any remaining problems by applying pressure with jacks or by loosening bolts. The old flat-pack furniture assembly method with 2,000 tonnes of steel under high tension. As it happened, they got away with all of this. It emerged during the Royal Commission that the process of aligning the beams had significantly weakened the safety margins on the structure, but eventually everything fitted together. So that was span 1415 up in place. Span 1011 just required repeating the same exercise. In the background at this time, though, there were some vicious contract disputes going on. The bridge was late, and the Lower Yarra Crossing Authority blamed World Services for going slow on the steelwork. To be fair, this wasn't entirely World Services' fault. There was a lot of union trouble on site, and most of it not caused by unions fighting with the company, but by unions fighting with other unions over demarcation. But the bridge was late, and World Services lost part of their contract, including erection of span 1011. The work was taken over by John Holland, who were doing the other construction work on site. Now remember that it was important to get the camber on the beams exactly right. World Services had a really nifty, high-tech, and totally unproven system for doing it. They didn't want to just line the boxes up, because sunlight on the top of the boxes could expand the top more than the bottom, distorting things. So they had a clever floating jack system, which didn't really work in the first place, and was misunderstood by the John Holland staff who were now taking over. With exact matching between the beams so important, you'd think that they would conduct a careful comparison, they would measure thing, these things on the ground before lifting the beams. But they measured the beams with a lot of extra things attached to one of them, including a whole crane that was sitting on one of the beams. When they measured them this way, the beams didn't match, but they could explain it away. They assumed it was because of the extra weight sitting on one of the beams. In fact, once the beams were lifted, there was still a big difference. Now, on the one hand, they'd successfully fixed span 1415, so they were confident that they could do it again, they could overcome the problems with this particular set of beams. On the other hand, fixing span 1415 had been a heck of a difficult job, so they wanted to do it better and easier this time. 
Their new procedure called for a series of jacks along each beam. The jacks would push down on the north beam and up on the south beam until the two lined up. Meanwhile, there was a system of bars in place to pull the two beams together. Jacking the beams in this way proved harder than it looked. Turned out it wasn't just the size of the camber was different. The curves on the beams actually had a different shape as well, so they pushed down on one bit, another bit got out of alignment, they pushed down on that bit, another bit got out of alignment. In the end, John Holland requested and was given permission to lift up ten big blocks of concrete, known as Kentledge, onto the top of the north beam to push it down. By mid-Saturday, the 5th of September 1970, they had seven blocks up in place. Work stopped for the weekend, and then on Sunday night it was clear that the concrete had caused a major buckle on the beam. There's a big difference between using jacks along the length of something and sitting blocks of concrete on top. They decided, quite wisely, that putting the other blocks on was a bad idea, and they finished aligning the beams with the jacks. The two beams were then joined together successfully. Now, beyond this point, you and I are just going to have to trust the analysis of the Royal Commission, because my knowledge of statics and stresses is just too rusty to explain exactly what happened. We've got these two beams up there, but even though they've been joined together, one of them has buckled because of the concrete that they sat on top. Now, a bridge is held up by a combination of compression and tension forces. Compression pushes things together, tension pulls them apart. If the forces are greater than the materials can stand, the individual pieces fail, the forces go elsewhere, and other pieces fail. The bridge needs to be stable at every point while you're building it, with safety margins on top and calculations are done for each point along the path, from no bridge to a completed bridge. When the buckle occurred, the bridge moved to a new, uncalculated state. To fix the buckle, they were going to undo some bolts, moving to a new state again. There were different options for the order in which things could be done, and what was needed was careful communication about the current state, careful decision-making about how to proceed, and clear communication about the actions to be taken. But, the senior Freeman Fox on-site engineer was in dispute with John Holland about strictly following the procedure manual and didn't want to be seen diverging from standard procedures himself, even though this wasn't a standard situation. The customer was getting antsy about safety after a similar bridge collapsed in the UK, and no one wanted the customer to actually see the buckle. So no one really wanted to talk clearly and openly about the best thing to do. With the plan that they decided, which was not the optimal plan, the first step involved removing a series of bolts. This immediately caused the whole beam to distort further, effectively no longer holding its own weight. The only keeping it up was the other beam, the south beam, which didn't have a large enough safety factor to hold itself and the entire north beam. Everyone involved immediately realised that something was wrong. The operation wasn't going to plan, and they concentrated on putting the bolts back in. They didn't quite realise how much danger they were in. From the time they took the bolts out, it took 50 minutes for the bridge to collapse. But it took them around 49 minutes and 50 seconds to realise just how serious the problem was. 
Just before the bridge fell, the senior engineer on site was on the phone, talking to an expert trying to get some advice. And his very last question was, shall I get the bods off? The span fell, taking with it Pier 11 of the bridge. There were workers standing on the beam at the time. There were workers inside the beam at the time. And there were workers having lunch 50 metres below. A total of 35 were killed, and several others had life-changing injuries. Ultimately, the problem was that the bridge wasn't strong enough to be built the way it was built. Normal British practice is that it's the job of the consulting engineers to make sure the bridge is safe when it's up, and the job of the construction contractor to make sure that it's built safely, including making sure that it's safe while it's halfway built. The consulting engineers oversee the construction contractor's calculations and work, but ultimately it's the contractors who are responsible. This assumes, of course, that the consulting engineers will design a bridge so there is at least one safe way of getting the bridge up. In fact, it appears that Freeman Fox had made oversimplified assumptions and that it was not in fact possible to build the bridge they had designed at least not without extra support to allow for the stresses of construction. In theory, this would have been fine, so long as World Services understood that this had happened, understood the design of the bridge, designed an appropriate construction scheme with extra support, and had the original designers, Freeman Fox, check their calculations. The relationship between Freeman Fox and World Services, though, broke down very, very quickly. Freeman Fox refused to support World Services with their own calculations, and they didn't give back useful comments when World Services gave Freeman Fox their calculations. As it happened, World Services didn't understand the overall structural behaviour, and Freeman Fox failed to detect the problems. When John Holland took over, their attitude was that they would simply do precisely what they were told. They would follow any instructions they were given, but they wouldn't take responsibility for the design of the work. This resulted in a detailed procedure manual written by John Holland, World Services and Freeman Fox. So they've got this big massive manual that says exactly how the bridge is to be built. But Freeman Fox frequently gave instructions or authorised procedures that were not in the manual. There were important procedures that had to be done that weren't in the manual. And John Holland didn't always follow the manual anyway. Exactly who was most to blame here is unclear. What's very clear is they spend a lot of time blaming each other. Now please, for the love of humanity, do not go away from this podcast thinking that the problems could have been fixed by a bigger manual or by stricter compliance to the manual. If your command and control safety system isn't working, one explanation is that your command and control needs fixing. But a better explanation, a much better explanation, is that the whole idea of command and control needs fixing. In this case, everyone was so hung up on the politics of following or not following the manual that they forgot that the whole point of the exercise was to make sure that each step was taken properly after due consideration of its safety. Even after the first buckling had occurred, if they'd just thrown away the manual, thrown away their bickering about the manual, and talked, they could have rationally chosen a safe course of action. But going backwards, 
One of the things that makes Westgate Bridge really interesting as an accident is that the investigation was able to look at the original analysis. It's pretty rare actually for a safety investigation to interrogate the original safety artefacts. But in this case it was clear that a bridge had collapsed when the calculations said it shouldn't have collapsed. Ergo, one of the first things the Royal Commission asked for was for the calculations to be rerun and checked against the originals. And when this was done, there were all sorts of discrepancies. In some places, the designers had taken figures given by standards and then moved them downwards to account for various real-world factors, ignoring the fact that the original figures had already taken those factors into account. For example, they put a discount onto the figure for loading from cars on the basis that you'd never have theoretically fully loaded bridge, ignoring the fact that the load curves already had a discount for that same thing. Another example is that Freeman Fox made assumptions about how straight various components would be. They took a figure of two-thirds of the figure in the standard, assuming that the components would be extra straight compared to the figures in the standard. But they never passed on extra straight as a requirement or checked extra straightness against the actual components. And there were numerous occasions when the Royal Commission was just unable to work out how the designers had come up with the numbers. The calculations were either not available, or they were incomprehensible. Once, even during the inquiry, a Freeman Fox engineer supposedly did some calculations overnight and gave the inquiry a number in the morning. But when he was asked to produce the working, he couldn't do it. Here's another quote from the Commission for you. Reconstruction of the time sequence has been made difficult by the fact that neither FFNP or WSC made a regular practice of either signing or dating calculations. What the heck? So, the safety of the bridge is based on the fact that they've calculated that it's going to be safe. Can we look at the calculations? And uh, no. Trust us, they're safe. We've got good calculations. When we do get to look at the calculations, they're basically scribbled on the back of a cigarette packet. We don't know who's done each calculation, we don't know when it was done. In fact, it was pretty clear that no one even knew who was responsible for doing the calculations. And what it boils down to is this. The calculations for the bridge in its steady state, performed by the consulting engineers, were reasonable. It was a bridge that was going to stay up. But the calculations for the bridge being put up were not reasonable. The bridge was safe up, but it wasn't safe going up. And when the contractors, World Services, tried to do their own calculations for putting the bridge up, they couldn't make the numbers work out. They asked con the consulting engineers for details of their calculations, but they were rebuffed. They asked for help in performing their own calculations, and they were given a few formulae which they proceeded to apply incorrectly. Now, looking back, there's good reason to believe that Freeman Fox, as well as doing their own calculations badly, didn't perform proper checks of world services calculations. So from a system safety perspective, there was supposed to be independent protection. The calculations would be done by one competent party and checked by another. What actually happened was that each party relied on the other to get things right. 
it wasn't that Freeman Fox believed their own calculations particularly. It's just that they thought it was World Service's job to worry about putting up the bridge. And it wasn't that World Services trusted their own calculations either. In fact, their calculations appeared to show that the bridge was unsafe even in the steady state. But they relied on checking by who they saw as the experts, Freeman Fox, to set things right. What checking was done, in particular the computer simulations, showed unacceptable stressing, but it was overruled by engineering judgement. There's one weird example. One of the Maunsell engineers, a guy called Wallace, was seconded to John Holland. He did some calculations of his own and raised alarm about unacceptable stresses. And these calculations were rejected as being too simplistic. So he hadn't done a great job, he'd done things fairly simply, but he'd come up raising concerns. And these concerns were rejected because there were more complex, better calculations that showed something different. And even after the accident, Freeman Fox was still making new claims that their calculation proved that the design was safe. And they claimed that their calculations proved that it was safe both after erection and at all stages during construction. Let me repeat that because I think it's a little bit extraordinary. After the bridge had fallen down, they didn't try to say that the calculations were someone else's responsibility or that they'd made errors but the errors were understandable or that the failure was beyond current knowledge of science computer power. They claimed that their bridge hadn't fallen down due to bad design. Now, given that the evidence was pretty clear that the bridge did in fact fall down, and the evidence is pretty clear that this was in fact due to poor design, what does this say about their calculations? Calculations that they weren't willing to expose to the scrutiny of others. Calculations where they were happy to use engineering judgment to overrule the output of their own analysis, but weren't happy to explain that to anyone else at the time. Now, possibly the way I'm criticising these people, they're coming across as just a little bit evil. And that's not the impression I really want to give. So let me backtrack from the criticism a little bit. And let me introduce you, dear listeners, to a phenomenon called probative blindness. Probative blindness refers to safety analysis, which is unable to determine whether something is in fact safe. This can happen because, as in the case of Nimrod XV-230, because the analysis was conducted for the purpose of confirming a pre-existing belief in safety. This can happen, as in the case of Bunsfield, because the analysis is undertaken to reassure a regulator or a customer, not to actually improve safety. This can happen as in the case of Columbia, because the thought that we may have found a dangerous safety problem too late to fix it is simply unthinkable. This can happen as in the case of Deepwater Horizon, because the schedule says we're supposed to pass the tests, it doesn't allow for the possibility that the tests might fail. It's a serious, serious problem, and it strikes at the identity of a safety practitioner. We aren't here to stop people doing cool things. We aren't the company police. That doesn't mean, though, that our job is to sit generating meaningless paperwork that never finds problems. And analysis that can't tell the difference between a safe and unsafe bridge 
is not just useless, it's actively dangerous. It stops someone else having confidence in their own concerns. And it shuts down and overrides less complicated analysis that does find problems. There are all sorts of different causes and all sorts of explanations for probative blindness. But the phenomena is very real. We do this a lot. We put a lot of effort into analysis and a lot of faith in the analysis. And when it comes back afterwards, the analysis simply didn't tell us the difference between safe and unsafe. Since I was talking about bridges on this episode anyway, I thought I'd have a go at the old story of bridges collapsing because of soldiers marching in step. You may have heard this one. The idea is that soldiers are told to break their step going over a bridge, because if they don't, the regular tread, tread, tread causes vibrations to get worse and worse and worse till the bridge falls down. So the physics behind this is fairly simple. Many mechanical systems are able to store kinetic energy. A train or car, for example, uses traction wheels to gradually add more and more forward motion to the vehicle. Kinetic energy doesn't have to be forward motion, though. It can also be vibration. So a swing in a playground is a good example of a system that takes little pushes or shifts in weight and creates a larger and larger pendulum motion by storing up the energy. With forward motion like a car, it doesn't matter exactly when you push. It just all adds together. With vibration, like on a swing, you have to push at exactly the right times, or it cancels out instead of adding on to the existing movement. The perfect timing, known as the resonant frequency, is different for each structure. Some structures have multiple resonant frequencies, and it is possible to build things so that for practical purposes they have no resonant frequency. But it's also possible to design things accidentally so that the resonant frequency matches a common input to the system, like the left-right step of soldiers marching in unison. There's a PhD thesis by a guy called Ming Hui Huang at Queensland University of Technology that looks at the very specific problem of modern pedestrian footbridges. It's becoming quite fashionable to have long, thin bridges just for foot traffic, and it turns out that these, quote, have natural frequencies within the frequency range of human activities. In other words, you build a long, thin bridge, and it turns out to be the perfect bridge to start vibrating when you have pedestrian traffic across it. The main problems are lateral vibration moving side to side, and torsion where the bridge twists from side to side. These are often coupled together, so the bridge starts to swing and twist, and each one sort of reinforces the other. There are a number of famous bridges with this problem. There's the Millennium Bridge in London, the Harbour Bridge in Auckland, the Alexandra Bridge in Ottawa, and a thing called the T Bridge in Tokyo. You can look up pictures of these, um, and you'll see that they're really quite different aesthetically, and they've got different designs, but they've all got this similar problem. It comes with the overall shape of the bridge, not so much the way the bridge is designed. According to Wang, the problem can be fixed, though, by carefully selecting parameters such as cable lengths and loads on each cable. If you don't do this, though, if you don't take into account the potential for pedestrian vibration, then fixing it afterwards gets really expensive. You have to add things like dampeners, which on the Millennium Bridge cost millions. All of this is certainly disconcerting, 
and you can imagine it makes people feel very unsafe when the bridge does it, or even perhaps start to lose their footing, which can be slightly dangerous. But what about causing the whole bridge to collapse? This is where we move beyond science to dubious history. The most often cited examples of a whole bridge collapsing under marching soldiers are the Brufton Suspension Bridge and the Angie Bridge in France. The Brufton Bridge had a badly weakened bolt on one of the ground anchors, and reports at the time had the soldiers deliberately moving to encourage the swing of the bridge. Now, deliberately moving from side to side is a way of inducing resonance, but it kind of falls squarely into the category of deliberate misuse rather than an accident. The Anji Bridge collapsed in the middle of a storm. Accounts suggest that the soldiers were moving from side to side to cope with the swaying bridge, which increased the oscillation, which made the bridge sway more, which made them move more. Again, this is resonance, and this time it is an accident, but it's not caused by the rhythmic marching. That particular bridge also had badly corroded steel cables, which were what ultimately gave way. So, it is true that it's genuinely realistic for marching soldiers to induce resonance in a bridge. It's also true that sometimes soldiers are given instructions to break step when crossing a bridge. Most often this is by signs at specific bridge that are known to resonate at frequencies close to pedestrian steps. But the examples of this actually happening tend to involve major problems with the bridge, other major problems, suggesting that the likelihood of a sizeable effect just from marching is pretty low. Still, soldiers have plenty of other good reasons not to march in formation while crossing bridges. It's a precaution that doesn't really cost anything, and we can design bridges so that it's not a problem, so why not just stop and think about it? There's another related one, though, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. That's a great clear-cut example of a bridge falling down just from resonance. In this case, it wasn't people, it was aerodynamic flutter, which gave rhythmic inputs that made the bridge sway. If you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. I can't do it justice on a voice-only podcast, it's a spectacular live video. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. If you're interested in learning more about the idea of probative blindness, I've got a paper coming up in a couple of weeks at the IET System Safety Conference. I won't actually be there to present it, unfortunately, because I'll be in Brisbane. Not just a flying visit this time, either. If you're listening from Australia and you're interested in courses or formal education, research, or just hooking into the safety community building around Griffith, please do drop me a line. If you're down in that direction, or in the States, or not otherwise able to get to the IET conference, then I'll happily send you a preprint of the paper on probative blindness. It's a topic I'm really interested in at the moment, how safety analysis itself can fail in the lead-up to accidents. So I'm happy to send copies to people to talk to people about it, look for other examples. Otherwise, do check out the webpage at disastercast.co.uk, Visit iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast directory of choice and leave a glowing review. Start a discussion on LinkedIn or at work about your favourite podcast and mention DisasterCast as well while you're at it. The next DisasterCast should be out on the 14th of October. Until then, keep safe.